Hey, it's Zoe, and I first met today's guest, Sophie Davies, on a hot, dusty day down in the Grampians in Victoria. We were both working at Outward Bound, and she was the boss lady, the area coordinator for the Grampians. And I thought she was amazing. She was so competent and capable and just seemed to be cool as a cucumber no matter what was going on. Fast forward, and we worked it out 24 years later. <laughs> Here we are. I'm interviewing the ambassador to Colombia and Venezuela, concurred ambassador, which I thought was just remarkable. So she stood down in April of this year, of April 2020, and is waiting to go back and do some amazing stuff in the international forum. I love this story. She is an international world traveler. She started off graduating from an economics and law degree, went to Outward Bound, learned about personal development and outdoor development, and then worked in international development for 12 years in places like Guyana, Costa Rica, PNG, Solomon Islands, and Southeast Asia. She also worked in Peru and then was Australia's deputy ambassador to Peru and Bolivia. Very cool. And one of the most interesting things that she did is in 2016 and 2017, she was director for climate change negotiations for the Australian government in Canberra and was heavily involved in the Paris Agreement. And we talk about that in the show. She is remarkable, just super humble and an amazing leader. So be sure to listen to what you can get out of this. You know, what are the key insights from working with so many diverse cultures and what are the key takeaways from from sailing through such difficult and interesting and challenging circumstances. Oh, and by the way, if you do enjoy the show, this is our last episode for 2020. Fantastic. That's actually not quite true. We do have a number of different episodes about to drop next week, but this is the last interview that we've got for 2020. If you enjoy the show, it helps us out tremendously if you rate and give us a review. I would love to hear what you love about the show and it helps get the word out and helps me to be able to bring you other amazing guests like Sophie so that we can all learn from their leadership expertise. So rate and review the show. Now on with the show. <laughs> Here's Sophie. Sophie Davies, it's been a donkey's age. I am so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Zoe, and thanks so much for the chance to have this chat. I'm also really excited knowing how far we go back together. So it's uh, it's great to have this chance to to catch up with you like this. Absolutely. Like I was thinking about what is my first memory of Sophie? And it was in the Grampians when I first arrived in Australia at Outward Bound. It was stinking hot, 40 degrees or something. And you were in charge. You were the big boss lady down there in charge of, I don't know how many staff, 30 or something like that. And you're whizzing around driving the coaster bus. And I thought, this woman is extraordinary. She goes from setting up this base camp and manning all the phones and technology to hopping in a bus, driving people around. And you just seem to do it with this nonchalance. And that's my very first memory of you. <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, as you know, it was such an incredible opportunity and experience and outward bound to take on those roles at a really, uh, yeah, relatively young age with an amazing people like you, you know, international people coming in who uh, you, know, you could bounce ideas off and, and learn things from. It was, it was an amazing experience. Absolutely, it was. And then you continue to have amazing experiences. So we fast forward 15 years. Actually, it's probably longer than 15 years because when did I arrive? 96, that's oh, 24. Oh, my God. 20, <laughs> 24 years later. Uh, a lot's happened to you, and you've ended up being the co. I'm not sure what the right title is. 
the concurrent, co-concurrent ambassador to both Colombia and Venezuela. Did I get that correct? Is that your correct? Well, how it works is <laughs> I was the first resident ambassador to Colombia. Yeah. And in that role, I was concurrently ambassador to Venezuela. So obviously, we've had ambassadors to Colombia previously, but not resident, not based in Colombia. Oh, right. Okay, cool. How does that go, being ambassador to two countries at once? Uh, so it happens very, very often. So you're, where you're based is, you know, is your residence, resident am, ambassadorship, and then often you group countries together. So, for example, in Mexico, our ambassador there is concurrently ambassador to about, um, I think, nine other countries or eight <laughs> other countries in Central America. So you have to go and present your credentials to each of those countries and you know formally be accepted by that country as their as Australia's ambassador. Obviously you're not living in all those countries. You live in your principal residence. Okay, I did not know that. I'll just <laughs> learn something new every day. So how did you go like you you trained as a lawyer, ended up at Outbound doing personal development and leadership development in the outdoors where we first met. And then you've ended up as ambassador. How uh, fill in the gap? So what happened? You left Outward Bound, and then how did you end up in the ambassador role? Well, I left Outward Bound to go and uh, work in the international development field. So I went to Costa Rica, where also you had an influence on one of the jobs I took there. You you gave me the steer to a sustainable development job. You sent it to me. I don't know if you remember. It was been, it was an amazing <laughs> job. So I was the student liaison officer for the Boston University. Development Studies School in Costa Rica. So I was liaising between the, the North American students and the Costa Rican community as an Australian. So that was kind of an interesting role. But then from there, I came back to Australia and worked for various international uh, development organisations. The most recent one before I went into the Australian government was with Care Australia. And there I this was coordinated for a small team covering the Asia-Pacific. So that was sort of the next um, leadership team of a team sort of role. Then I went into the Australian government into AusAid and I worked sort of as a member of a team for a bit in Canberra and then I got posted to Peru and was the regional manager for Australia's uh, Latin America aid program. And that was built around you know, building a team in Lima, Peru and then managing our people who were based in various embassies across Latin America. And then came back to Australia and was uh, I was the director for climate change negotiations. So I was um, leading a small team that had just, it was an amazing team. They'd just been successful at the Paris Accord negotiations. So I was part of that team on the, after Paris. So there's a, there was a lot going on. There's a lot of exhaustion and joy and still a lot to do for the Paris Agreement to finalise the, um, the detail under the agreement. We, and we moved to Columbia in September 2017 to take up that role. Wow. That's sort of like an iteration and growth of your commitment to international relations and doing stuff for people around the world. Yes. Yeah, I think uh, when I came out of the law, I realised that I wanted to do, I really wanted to work with people and relations, and which started at the, I guess, level at Outward Bound around personal development and, and professional development at the same time and then yeah, build on that to go into international development and then as you say yeah, international relations more broadly. So I want to ask a leadership question in all this right so you've been in a huge variety of leadership roles 
Have you got a definition of leadership? How do you define it? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I think a leader's role should be to harness and make the best of the team that they're working with. So I think it's really a matter of you know, giving that team direction, you're aligning the uh, resources within that team and drawing on their commitment. And that's an actual model of leadership that I have learned, but I think it's a very useful model is to bring together direction, alignment and commitment. And that way, you know, you've really got a high functioning team. Now, that sounds like a very pat answer. What was your I first? I was thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't mean that to be patronizing. What I did mean to say is like, it's taken a long time to come to that awareness. What was your first experience as a leader? Like, what do you remember about your first attempt? I guess an attempt or first undertaking as a leader. What was difficult and what did you learn? Well, I was thinking about that um, in preparation for this. And I was really, I was the made um, vice captain of my high school. And that completely took me by surprise. And of course, it was a great privilege but I think what I struggled with was taking on the role of being a leader so I was and given that opportunity but I didn't really make the most of it we had a fantastic school captain and I think she really ran it very well and I sort of took on that very support role which a deputy often does but I think you can also deputies or or whatever leadership role you're in you can you can do more when you're um, given the opportunity to be in those positions. So what do you mean that you feel like you didn't capitalize on it? Were you just shy of trying new things or did you just ride on her coattails? Or? No, I think it was that um, fear of um, making a mistake or uh, not taking a risk or, yes, being deferential to, you know, the person who's in the, in the captain role. So I think there's just several things that just stopped me from trying to do more with that role. How did you overcome that? Because you know, that was your first leadership experience and then you went on to other ones. So what shifted? How did you shift that? Well, I don't think I did successfully. I think we just worked We worked really well together as a team and, and I, so I just settled into that deputy role of supporting her and, and doing what I needed to and also sort of concentrating very much on that year 12 and trying to do as well as you could across all, all your life in year 12. So, yeah, it was really, I think, been the opportunity then to really experience leadership more fully was, was outward bound where, uh, yeah, we had these big groups, varied staff teams, so about three to 25 people, and then we would be coordinating groups of, I think in the Grampians when I met you or the period before might have been, you know, there were about a 1,000 school kids who came through over a three-month period. So, yeah, you know, and it, it was massive and you have to, be able to you know be quite resilient and it's really it was really hard work and you had you know as you always do in teams you have a lot of different personalities that that you need to um try to bring together that was a good experience i like that one so that last one so bringing personalities together what did you learn about people through that experience i mean when you when you say bring different personalities together are there some that spring to mind in terms of easiness or difficult to to handle yeah yeah we had uh people with very different motivations i think for working there and some people this was going to be what they wanted to do forever more was work in outdoor education or in personal development 
other people who came through or me weren't sure if this was something that they were going to pursue for a long time. So their motivations for why people there, um, dealing with the different schools and the teacher personalities, that was another group of personalities that you needed to be aware of, who the client. So um, we had to be very aware of how we dealt with the client. Um, I think in terms of how you manage those sorts of differences in personality is really to try to understand where the people are coming from and you know, what their motivations are and, and what they might find concerning or challenging and try to help them make the most of their strengths and abilities when they're leading because they themselves are also leading a group um, when they're out in the field. So that's um, that's a fascinating insight, the fact that people have different motivators and we as leaders need to respond to each of those differently and be adaptable to that. Was there something in your leadership experiences, maybe not just at Outward Bound, but ongoing, that that was the toughest thing? Like maybe it was a rock and a hard place moment or an ethical challenge or something like that. Can you think of a time when it was like the deepest, darkest, hardest? Yeah, I can. <laughs> Not sure how much I can talk about it, but no, I think I can. So it was when uh, I was running the aid program in Latin America, and so we'd expanded the team, we're expanding the work, and then there was a change of government, and the decision was made to you know shut down the aid program and to merge AusAid with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. That was an extremely tough time, and um, so it was a matter of ending people's contracts. Putting some some people had to be made redundant. Some people were given the opportunity to apply for a new role in the new department. That was probably the most challenging leadership. Well, I mean, there's definitely been challenges as, as the ambassador to Colombia, but I think in terms of the personality question that we're talking about, that was one of the most challenging things I've had to work with. Was that because you were letting people go and they were disgruntled, disappointed and upset? Was that was what was hard about it? Yeah, it was very hard because, uh, you know, we'd all been building up something and for some people this was their dream job, you know, this is, they'd given them a lot to do this and for others it wasn't such a big deal and but there were a lot of different experiences across the team that basically had to fold down and, yeah, and people were really invested in their jobs. So not only were they losing a job, something that they loved and was their dream. Yeah, it was also the the fact that it had happened quite suddenly um, and some people cope with change a bit better than others. I think that's another thing where it's more difficult in massive changes like that. The people who um, may be more optimistic or more able to cope with change, they are able to move on or take advantage of the positive side of massive change whereas other people found it very, very difficult and it was, it was hard. And then there, sometimes that can affect others in the team. Uh, okay. So, yeah, a little bit of a ripple effect in terms of their emotional angst. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm curious now about diplomacy and the challenges of leadership in a diplomatic context uh, because you're representing Australia and you're negotiating issues with a foreign power, which is basically other humans. Yeah. <laughs> How did leadership change, if it did, in that context? Yes. Uh, well, so there's several different ways of looking at that question. So firstly, you know, you are the head of a mission. I'm a head of a mission when I'm over in Colombia. 
I'm, um, yeah, the Australian government's representative not only for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, but also bringing together all the other agencies that are working in Colombia and have an interest in Colombia. So, you know, in our case, that was the AFP, and we had the Department of Education, Department of Ag, um, CSIRO. So many agencies had an interest in Colombia. So on the one level, you are definitely a DFAT em, um, employee. But on the other hand, you're the head of mission and needing to make sure that each agency's interests are um, well represented through what you do as head of mission in that country. On the other hand, the other part of your question, I think, was how you relate to people from a different country and how you are able to um, you know, pursue Australia's interests um, in relating to the people from the other country. And I think uh, it was very, very useful that I um, have had spent a lot of time in Latin America you know, I have a husband who's from Latin America. I speak the language. So I understand the cultural aspects of that. To me, it was very useful to be able to understand the culture that I was talking with, speak their language, and be able to not only translate things in a literal sense, but also, you know, put that in a cultural context for the people that I was dealing with overseas. And how different, like what are some of the cultural issues that you'd needed to keep in mind with conversations? Well, you know, Australians are quite direct and, um, um, you know, we can, I don't know, Canadians, you're quite direct too, but I think we might even be more direct. <laughs> but I think you need to first uh, spend a bit of time building that relationship. Uh, it's very, very important, to, you know, to have, um, have you know, um, a bit of understanding of the person you're talking with and their family maybe even, their work context and what they're doing. So you need to spend a bit of time establishing that relationship, nurturing that relationship um, before you dive straight into the issue that you might want to pursue. So once you've managed, and in Latin America, WhatsApp is the thing. You know, I have ministers on WhatsApp and I would, you could directly message people, uh, quite influential people, but I really only want you to establish that relationship. So first, uh, and it's, I think, I don't know, I think during COVID, this will be so much harder because it really makes a difference when you could establish that relationship face to face first up. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be a rude surprise for many Australians if they're just like, right, let's talk about climate change. And they're like, you didn't even ask me what, you know, <laughs> what my exactly. family's about or where I live. Like, what's up with you? So rude. <laughs> What well, does come across as rude? I don't think Australians obvious. Obviously, we're not meaning to be rude ever. But um, understanding and taking a bit of time to understand the other person you're talking with, and on a personal level, um, makes a big difference when you go to the um, work aspect. Oh, absolutely. So I'm curious now, also because working on the climate accord in Paris, the Paris Agreement. I mean, that's. That's a whole bunch of different cultures all in one um, right. room wrestling on some major big picture issues. What was that like? That was fascinating. And that was um, it's a very interesting multilateral context, as you say, like the whole world's there. And, and Australia is chair of a particular group of countries called the Umbrella Group, which really br brings together a disparate group of countries, you know, Russia, it's the US, it's Japan, it's Iceland, it's Norway and, and others that I might be forgetting. It's not a big, and New Zealand. So it's not a big group, but it's a very disparate, different group of countries. 
And as the chair and in my team's role, we provided a secretariat function to the ambassador for the environment. Um, yeah, we had to be, again, very aware of, of which each of those countries' uh, stance was on, on particular parts of the negotiations. And we had to try to bring together our com common viewpoint. Um, and in the stage of the negotiations that where I was um, active, which, as I said, was post the accords, but at the point where we had to then agree the rules under the agreement, it was very tricky. You had to, we could as a group, if we could identify those things, our common threads, then as a group, uh, we were able to be, you know, have our voice heard quite well in the negotiations. But yeah, so that was an interesting experience. Because all of those countries have very different cultural approaches, you know, and not yes. all of them direct. Some of them are very indirect. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, I think we had the advantage that many of the people around the room had spent like decades working in these climate change negotiations. So they had very, very good understanding of you know, where Australia was coming from and New Zealand and you know, different countries, different ways of approaching this issue. They did have different cultures, but I think the fact that we were all talking on a common thread and around a, a topic that people were very familiar with meant that we were able to overcome those sorts of cultural issues and be able to work effectively together. So what did you think when the U.S. pulled out of it? <laughs> well, it was interesting because on the day, we were actually in negotiations, I think, in Marrakesh, if I'm not wrong, on the day that that Trump was elected. And so it was obvious to the team there that they were going to be pulling out of the Paris Agreement. And they were sad because I think the U.S. had been very instrumental in how we had come to agree as the world on the Paris Agreement. And they're very, very productive, like excellent, excellent negotiators, very uh, good team, worked really well with Australia and within this group called the Umbrella Group. So I think there was a sense of sadness that um, we would be losing the weight and influence of such an important country as the US. So yeah, the US dropped out. Everyone was sad that they were losing such great negotiators. How does, in the diplomatic world, how do countries collectively respond to that? Do they just nod politely and leave it to the U.S. to do their own thing? Is there private outrage? Is there, is there ways to try and negotiate? Or if it's so unilaterally done, like it was through Trump's executive decision to do that, what recourse is there to invite them back? How do, how do you tackle that as a diplomat? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the issue and, and how the country chooses to respond. So on some issues, you know, Australia will you know, take a leadership role. So, for example, that uh, you know, on the death penalty, that we have made it clear that we don't agree with the death penalty. On the Paris Agreement, it, you know, there was always it was quite um, open that when Trump became president, that they would withdraw, and it was certainly disappointing to Australia. And you know, we made made that known, but there wasn't much else we could do apart from express our disappointment and our hope that they would rejoin when the time was right for the U.S. and point to the fact that many of the states in the U.S. are still effectively going ahead with their own targets, with their own you know, business-led uh, often uh, transition to low or no-carbon industries. So, yeah, in a diplomatic sense, the, it really depends on what um, our government decides and how they would like us as diplomats to respond 
And in that case, yes, it was, we expressed our disappointment. Okay. That makes sense. So one of the other questions I have for you is you've been in a leader across many different sectors and high profile positions. How do you keep learning about leadership? Is it a deliberate practice that you do? Do you have some habits around that or do you just stay open to the experience? Yeah, I mean, I try to be deliberate, but you know, time goes in different directions. But no, I do. I, I subscribe to leadership, different, you know, the uh, Harvard Business Review leadership blogs. I subscribe to that. You know, I bought a book the other day, The Leadership Lab, which I'm sl- very slowly going through. I'm very keen to read uh, Julia Gillard's recent book. You know, there's the Broad Agenda, which I also listen to that podcast. So there's, there's various things that I do to try to to really to prompt me to think in different ways and see how other people are doing leadership and women's leadership to me is very interesting and DFAT's put a lot of effort into our women in leadership you know, we can proudly say that now that 42% of our ambassadors are women whereas I think you know, in 2015 it was 22% and we're one of the best if not the best in, in the G20 for our number of women as ambassadors so I think um, I'd like to put more into the deliberate act of looking into leadership but I also enjoy the fact that I have the opportunity to do it and I think that's also being an experiential learner <laughs> like yourself I think um, I think it, learning on the job is is also very useful in terms of how to improve your leadership and how you might uh, work with different people. Tell me a little bit more about your interest in women's leadership. What does that mean to you and what's interesting about it for you? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how women leaders, women heads of state have handled COVID in a different and more successful way. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know how general we can be about that. But I think, you know, there's obviously Jacinda Ardern is an incredible leader. We've had our own, you know, Julie Bishop, Julia Gillard, Maurice Payne, the current foreign minister. Yeah, there's there amazing women leaders the secretary of my department she's put a lot of effort into it and i think um you know there's a creating the space for women to step up i do subscribe to the thinking that women are much slower to put themselves forward and they're they are much less confident of their ability until they're way overqualified to put themselves forward so i think in that sense affirmative action Maybe not in terms of necessarily hard targets, but having a um, creating that space for women to come forward and maybe giving them a bit of a push to put their names forward when they don't feel completely ready. I mean, I certainly struggled with the imposter syndrome for at least six months as the ambassador. And there's that thing, it is a real thing that you feel you know, maybe maybe they've made a big mistake. But then if you're given that confidence and that trust by your organization then you're you're always going to fill those shoes i really think so so how long did so uh, six months of imposter syndrome as ambassador well be, it really started from when i was appointed so that was before i went up there so maybe it wasn't that long on the job but you know i had an excellent support network with the other male ambassadors across the region and i had a fantastic you know, female mentor and and uh, with that sort of support you start to overcome your concern about that and it just becomes it gets left behind quite quickly that's good to hear (laughs) yeah yeah 
because it, it does constrain your uh, confidence. But then once you're through it, it's, uh, it's, I think it's also part of the experience of moving into those sorts of roles. Absolutely. So one of the things I'd like to talk to leaders about is how they develop other leaders. And you sort of mentioned that in your definition of success is that leadership is about enabling others to realize their potential. How do you specifically go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is about giving people um, freedom and empowering them to uh, put their own ideas into place and not trying to you know, stamp a particular way forward or a particular idea on another person's way of you know, leading a team. I think it's a matter also of having an open door policy, obviously. So the ability to, be, to have safe places where people can talk about whatever issue that they might be dealing with and talk through you know, issues they might be um, confronting with their team. So I think it's that supportive role and also empowering others to lead their teams. So you've you've had many sort of interesting experiences there. Is there a leadership failure that you can think of? Like one thing you tried and it was just like, blah, it bombed? Or an experience that was a bit sort of... <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, it's maybe it's a bit of an obvious one, but those planning days, which I think are really important to bring people together and share ideas and hopes and fears and, and ways forward, but the, often the failure of those days is that there's not the follow-up and I constantly feel that they're a good experience and they allow everyone to you know, be accountable for what they want to achieve. But then if there's no follow-up, people then can't feel the success of, of their actions or they might not be able to um, really achieve what they wanted to. How we develop as a team, how we can keep that going uh, once we've put in some sort of input like a good you know, planning day, uh, that's always a struggle. Oh, interesting. And so a struggle for the team or struggle for you to to come back and do it with the team? Yeah, I think it's both. So you can come back and do the annual thing and then you're sort of starting again. And then you, I think everyone wants to come together, not wants to, I think they realize the need to come and revisit the plan, uh, but it's often hard to, to get that motivation again. So the team goes on and they have the framework that you that the team's decided on and that, I think that's really good. But I think we could benefit from going back to the plan or reassessing it uh, more often over the period you know, between one planning session and another. What happens? You just get too busy or you get distracted by other things? Yeah, I think we get into that. Um, and I think the team feels that some people hate those days and they hate they hate the fact that they have to do it that we do it. But then um, I think most people do see them as beneficial. Uh, so it's also bringing along those people who just think it's all a waste of time. Um, <laughs> well, I don't. I think they're really useful and I think we should be doing more of it. But it's how you also convince those people who just think it's a whole lot of hogwash. So um, bringing people along also with that idea of, of constantly self-improvement, I guess, and self-improvement as a, as a team. Mm. Mm. So where to from here for you? Have you got ideas for what your next role is going to be? Or are you on a little hiatus or what's happening for you around that? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in a little bit of a hiatus. So, so I'm hoping to go, well, we'll go back um, into a new role in mid-December. It's yet to be decided what that role 
might be. So it might be in a sort of corporate planning or strategy area of the department, or it might be in a multilateral sort of trade area. So that that's still to be decided. But whatever it is, I'm really looking forward to going back to it. Oh, that's exciting. Ah, so, yeah, managing so much complexity. Um, what's the best piece of leadership advice you've ever been given? Oh, I can tell you the ones that aren't the good ones. No, the good ones. Yeah, good. Let me hear the bad ones, and then we can talk about the good ones. I've been thinking about this one a lot. I think one of the worst ones I've been given is you're the boss. And I really dislike that one because uh, it's often been given to me, only been given to me by male leaders. And I think it's a very heavy-handed way of dealing with leadership. I think, uh, you know, the best one is just be yourself. And that sounds very sort of obvious, but I think the best leaders are those ones who are genuinely who they are. They bring them whole, their whole self to the office. And the, the humility, you know, they have those sorts of characteristics which make them approachable and the team feels free to, you know, to take risks. So I think to um, have success, you also need to have failures and without that understanding within the team that you can do that. No, I'm wandering around a bit now, but <laughs> I think that they're the ones that make you successful. But I think, yeah, be yourself. That's one of the best pieces of advice I've been given. Yeah, and that's consistent with what I know of you and for all these many years. I can't believe it's been two and a half decades. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, we got a few more wrinkles than when we first met. That's for sure. <laughs> that's right. What would you like people to know about international diplomacy and working on an international stage that they may not know? Um, then it's a lot of fun, and it's also a lot of work in terms of. You need to, um, I think this goes back to an earlier part of our conversation, it needs to really understand what we want out of it as um, as Australia and what uh, the other side wants out of it when we come together for a conversation. But it's a lot of fun and I think that Australia is really loved in the world. So that's uh, another thing that uh, well, in the part of the world that I'm most familiar with in this space, which is Latin America. And I don't think we realise enough how much our soft power is in Latin America and over that side and parts of Asia that I've worked in as well. So I think as Australia, uh, we could do more to, to promote and build on our, on our soft power because it really is strong. In Colombia, Australia was like the place to go, the place to study and the culture that people were fascinated, one of the cultures that they loved. What do you mean by soft power? I mean, I write about this in my latest book, but I want to make sure that I understand it from your point of view as somebody in diplomacy. What, what do you mean by soft power? Um, it's that influence that we have through our culture or through our reputation as a country that can influence and change another country's perspective uh, just because of the respect or admiration they might have for our way of doing things or our culture. So a lot of that, say, in Colombia came through the fact that 20,000 Colombians come to Australia every year to study mostly English. So it's our second largest English language market after China. But that exerts a, a warm feeling towards Australia and a cultural understanding. They really understood us. And that sort of opens the door already to when we go into the Colombian government or um, business organisations, they already have a sense of what Australia means and what it is. Uh, so you're already uh, one step towards getting closer to you know, an agreement or an exchange of views 
just because that we're an understood and well-liked country. And that soft power then opens doors. What is it that they like about Australians? Uh, we're laid back. <laughs> they really like that. They like the fact, yeah, that we relax. When they come here, they like the fact that it's a very safe country and that we're fun, that we, I think, that we don't take ourselves too seriously and that we're quite innovative. So they are impressed by that. I don't think they know that very much. You know, I would say we've got 16 Nobel Prize laureates, Australia does, and that's not really well known. So, and CSIRO, I mean, when people hear about all the um, things that CSIRO have done, they're amazed by that as well. So part of our role as ambassadors and diplomats is to promote those aspects of Australia that show our innovativeness and our openness and the fact, you know, we're such a multicultural country. Um, one of my big things was 49% of Australians um, were either born overseas or have a parent who was born overseas. And that really talks to people as well. Yeah, it shows a little bit more tolerance for for difference. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and it's that openness and the fact that they can come here and feel comfortable and safe and and really when they come here make the most of their time. Sophie, you sound like the perfect person to represent Australia. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, an, it's a massive it was a massive privilege and I would love to do it again. Uh, it's so if that was Fantastic. I just loved talking with you about all these fascinating issues and challenges of leading on a world stage. Not everybody I talk to leads on a world stage with all the big people at the table. And it's fascinating to hear your insights and observations around that. And I love how it comes down to just be yourself and be open and welcoming to others. Yeah, So I think so. <laughs> well, that's, that's good news. I mean, that's a simple lesson for complex issues. And I always like to have that as an outcome in these conversations. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, sorry. Thanks for the chance to talk with you. It was great to catch up. That was so fascinating. I just loved hearing about international relations and negotiations at the table when the stakes are so high on an international uh, platform. And it's great to have Sophie to talk to. And I feel like I'm a little bit of a fly in the wall behind the scenes looking at all the shenanigans and negotiations and tensions that happen when you're discussing things like the Paris Climate Accord. So very cool. And I think the key takeaway from my conversation with Sophie is just to be respectful and be curious of what people's motivators are and what's important to them. And not to be pushing your own agenda only, but to try and look for that common thread to weave it all together. As I mentioned in the intro, this is our last interview of 2020. What an amazing ride we've had this year. I think a lot of us would be happy to see the back of this year. And yet there were so many good things that happened this year. We do have an interesting set of episodes coming out next week for you. We're just going to load them all up all at once to take you through all of January. And these are episodes centered on what I'm doing with my Amplifiers group, which is our high-level leadership program, which you can join from anywhere in the world. And we focus on a theme for each quarter. And this quarter's theme over the summer, which is summer in Australia here, I mean, is Project U. So we're doing a deep dive on some of the fundamentals and the recordings that we're going to put all up all at once is kind of like a self-guided course that you can take through the summer, listen all at once, gorge on it, <laughs> binge on it if you like, or take a little bit by little bit and 
follow through with the exercises and reflections as you go along. So you can have your own project you experience alongside of my amplifiers group. Now, if you want to take it up a notch and join us live with other live human beings, then please feel free to take a look at the Amplifiers program. We are seeking new participants. We want to bring new ideas, new experiences into the fold so that we can all learn to extend our thinking and our perspective. And I think the door is open right for you. So if this is calling to you, that was my calling sound. (laughs) Please check it out. Reach out to me. I'd love to chat to you about Amplifiers. In the meantime, look forward to that Project U sessions dropping next week to take you through to the end of January. And then we'll be back in the new year, 2021, with a whole new format. Well, it's not that new, really. There'll be different elements to the podcast next year. And we will be taking the theme idea for each quarter and running it through each quarter. And in that, we'll have interviews with leaders like Sophie, interviews with expert authors. We will do interviews of amplifiers and what they are actually doing and learning and applying on the job through their experiences. We will do reflections and insights on the particular topic for that quarter, and we'll do book reviews. So it's going to be a rich, deep learning experience for you. And I want to thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening all the way to the end each episode. That's fantastic. I appreciate your support and your listenership, and I really value any comments that people send through either to my personal email, zoe at intercompass.com.au, or through the socials or on the podcast platforms themselves. You're amazing. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for leading, and thanks for making your contribution to the planet and making this place just a wee bit better because of the amazingness that is you. Happy 2020. Let's welcome in 2021 and let's make it really incredibly special. See you soon.